remarkable joy we have to gather together and proclaim that our God lives. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And it's based on this hope that we now come to hear our God speak to us. So please open your copy of God's word to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 15 to 23. As we turn our attention to the scriptures, let's ask God to illuminate his word. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come to you with hearts full of thankfulness for all the great things that you have done. We confess that our Savior, Jesus Christ, has conquered the grave and now lives to intercede for us. Father of glory, we ask that your spirit will enlighten the eyes of our hearts. May we behold the riches and splendor and majesty of your exalted Son. We ask that you strengthen our weak faith and our failing bodies so that we might know you and your marvelous work. Fill us with all the fullness of Christ that we might endure in faith and stand complete on that final day. We ask that you would accomplish all of your purposes through your word and that you would receive all the worship due your name. In the name above every name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's now read Ephesians 1. 15 to 23. Now this morning, we'll focus most of our time meditating on verses 19 to 23. Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Praise God for his word. On the morning of February 6, 2018, a heavy fog descended on E311 during the rush hour traffic in Abu Dhabi. Now the fog was so dense that it limited drivers' ability to see cars even right in front of them. So many drivers decided to pull to the side of the road. 
but others simply just stopped in the middle of traffic. Unfortunately, this proved tragic. Unable to see the cars ahead, the driver of a large cargo truck drove full speed, crushing several vehicles on the road. This caused a 200-car pileup, killing at least six people and injuring many more. Friends, limited eyesight on the road is dangerous and deadly. Limited eyesight when driving on the road is dangerous and deadly. And the same can be said about the Christian life. Limited eyesight on the road of faith is dangerous and it can be destructive. Though you are given spiritual eyes the moment you are saved, there are many things that can hinder your faith in this race to endure. Maybe the cares of this world, more money, you want a spouse, responsibilities in the home, weigh you down and slowly turn your eyes away from Christ. Or maybe that sinful desire that clings closely clouds your judgment and you give in to sin. Or maybe the weight of ongoing hardship dims the hope you have in Christ. The truths you once treasured are now hard to believe. And friends, if you per persist in unbelief, you will not be able to see the danger ahead like that car, like that cargo truck. And if you persist in unbelief, you will make shipwreck of your faith. But praise God that he is able to lift the cloud of unbelief and revive the most weary soul. This, is, this in fact, is why the Apostle Paul constantly prayed for the church in Ephesus. This is what we see in verse 15 to 23. You see, Paul knew the peril and eternal danger of falling away from Christ. He even warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that wolves would arise and lead some to abandon the faith. So after describing all the spiritual blessings of Christ in verse 3 to 14, Paul then prays. He prays that God would open their hearts, the eyes of their heart, to know the glory of their salvation. So look at verse 15 to 18. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So here, even as Paul is thanking God for their faith, Paul prays that the church might grow in faith. He recognizes their faith in Christ and praises God, but he continues to petition and pray constantly for their faith. His main petition here is that the church, that we would grow in knowing our God. This is not just an intellectual knowledge but an intimate trust and an ultimate delight. As Jesus prays in John 17, verse 3, knowing God is eternal life. So Paul prays that the Spirit will help us see God's glory and believe in his word. 
Paul prays that we will see his glory and continue to trust in him and endure in faith. Friends, is this not what your distracted and weary heart needs the most? To behold the glory of your God. As we just sung, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, to help us know our God, to behold his glory, Paul prays that we might understand three things that he has done. So to know who our God is, Paul points to the things he has done. Look again at verse 18 and 19. He says that you may know, this is a prayer, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, all three of these come as a package deal. They are either true of you in Christ or they're not. So if you have faith in Christ... God calls you to a glorious hope of eternal life. He gives you an eternal inheritance in that rich and glorious promised land to come. And thirdly, God works his immeasurable greatness and power towards us who believe. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time meditating on that last work of God. Meditating on the greatness of his power towards us who believe. And my hope is that God will shine through the haze of unbelief and increase your faith in him so that you might endure to the end. So there are four truths here, four truths that demonstrate God's power for us in Christ. Number one, you must know God's power to raise Christ from the dead. You must know God's power to raise Christ from the dead. We see this in verse 19 and 20. Look again at verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So Paul wants us to grasp the greatness of God's power that he works towards us, that he works towards us in salvation, and he works towards us in preserving our faith. And the power that he works towards us, Paul says, is immeasurable. It cannot be contained by any human measurement. So to help us comprehend God's mighty work for us, Paul turns our attention to God's work in Christ. We see this from that word according to. Did you notice that in the text? What is the measurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to, or in conformity to, or consistently with the work he, the, the might he worked in Christ. Beloved, the same power that God exerted in Christ is the same power that he exerts in you now. And that's both for your salvation and for your sanctification. So do you want to know, Christian, God's work in you? Paul says to look to God's work in Christ. 
So let's think deeply about the greatness of God's power towards Christ, starting with when God rose Christ from the dead. And to understand this, to understand God's power to raise Christ from the dead, we first need to think about what's going on in Christ's death. And like the world would have you believe, the cross was not just another wrongful murder of an innocent man. It was that, but it was oh so much more than that. See, at the heart of the cross is Christ's atonement for our sin. His His death was substitutionary, meaning he died in our stead. Because of your sin, you deserve death. And at the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of both our sin and our death. At the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin and our death. So let's take those one at a time. First, Jesus bore our death. So let's think about death. Death is the rightful payment for sin. Think back to what God said to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2, verse 16 to 17, he said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The day you disobey my word, God says, you will receive the payment of your sin and disobedience. You will die. The moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God, Humanity and all of creation was plunged under this death sentence. There is nothing in creation that is not touched by the power of death. So listen to how Charles Spurgeon describes the power of death. He says, this vandal spares no work of life, however full of wisdom or beauty, for it loosens the silver cord and breaks the golden bowl. Lo, at the fountain, the costly pitcher is utterly broken, and at the cistern, the well-wrought will is dashed in pieces. Death is a fierce invader of the realms of life, and where it comes, it fells every good tree, stops all wells of water, and mars every good piece of land with stones. See you a man, when death has wrought his will upon him. What a ruin he is! How is his beauty turned to ashes and his strength to corruption? Now, friends, you might be thinking that you have your whole life in front of you. But in reality, you are only one more breath closer to death. Each one of us will die. No amount of money, no amount of influence, no amount of success, no amount of Worldly strength will keep you from the grave. Now, if you don't believe me, just think about how useless you are when you catch a small microscopic virus. Every cough, every ache, every prescription, every earthquake you see, every tragedy on the news is a reminder that death is coming for you. Friends, death is undefeated because all of us stand condemned in our sin. You will surely die. 
So Jesus bore our death on the cross, but he also bore our sin. Like death, sin corrupts and destroys everything. Each one of us was born under sin's captivity. We inherit Adam's guilt and his sinful nature. And as we saw in Ephesians 2, we are born spiritually dead, like a rotting corpse. Apart from Christ, we cannot obey God, and we're incapable of not sinning. We were born children of wrath, willingly obeying the passions of our flesh, willingly following the course of this world, and under the rule of Satan himself. Before you were saved, everything you did was under the influence and power of sin. There was nothing you could do to escape it. You were under its captivity and its power and its influence. Before Christ, you were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. You were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. You were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Romans 1, verse 30. Maybe some are such as you. Maybe some of you currently under the bondage of sin. And the scripture tells us that only one lustful thought, only one angry word is worthy of the full measure of God's righteous condemnation in hell forever. That is our state before a holy God. And this is what Jesus bore on the cross. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ willingly offered himself as a sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sin and death. Though he's the creator of the ends of the earth, Jesus Christ took on flesh so he might accomplish our redemption. He lived that perfectly obedient life so that he might offer himself as that spotless lamb. And at the cross, he bore the full measure of our sin and death. He felt the power of death with every lash of the whip. He felt the power of death with every throb in his nail-pierced wrist. He felt the anguish of death's sting as he suffocated to his final breath. And oh, so much more than that. Eternally more than that. He knew the power of God's wrath for our sin. He was crushed under the full power and weight of God's judgment. Let me just think. For instance, about the weight of a car that was to collapse on you. Or if you're standing under the Burj Khalifa and it was to fall on you. Or the weight of the entire cosmos does not scratch the surface of the weight of God's judgment that Christ bore on the cross. At the cross, Jesus bore the full penalty, the full weight, the full judgment of our sin and death. On Good Friday, Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live 
There in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and me. He experienced the full power of death and weight of sin. But the good news of the gospel is that he did not remain dead. On the third day, on the third day, a resurrection Sunday, with the greatness of his almighty power, God raised Christ from the dead. Friends, death is undefeated no more. God conquered the power of sin and the power of death when he raised Jesus Christ. As Paul exclaims in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God in his almighty power rose Christ from the dead. And friends, this is the power that God is now working in you. God is working with that resurrection power for your salvation and your sanctification. Friends, if you have died with Christ, you have been raised with Christ to newness of life. The Spirit has regenerated your heart and enables you to see his glory and obey his commands. Friends, you have the all-powerful, sin-conquering, death-destroying life of Christ in you. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. What good news we have. Friends, you are not powerless to fight your sin. God is working in, with, in you his resurrection power. As F.F. Bruce explains, the indwelling spirit who supplied the hope of their future resurrection also supplied the power to live day by day as those who had died with Christ has been raised to new life with him. So friends, if you are a Christian, you have the power of God to put off your sin and to daily put on the righteousness of Christ. We do this by faith. We do this by trusting not in our own strength, but trusting, trusting in his victory over our sin and death. You know, one of the, the primary ways that we fight our sin and the strength that God supplies is by trusting in God's word, by trusting in God's word. So turn with me to Philippians 2, 12 to 16. Philippians 2, 12 to 16. Listen to Paul's logic here. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, this is the reason, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How do we do this? What does this look like? That do not do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in, in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We work out our salvation as God works in us as we lay hold of the word of life, the scriptures. So here we put off grumbling. I don't know if anyone here struggles with grumbling and complaining. We put off grumbling. We put off every sort of sin by holding fast to the word of life, by believing in his word and trusting in his word and applying his word by the power of the Spirit. And as we do that, God in his might works in us his, with his resurrection power. So if you are burdened by your sin, or you're tempted to despair, or you think you have no strength to continue on, then come to the fountain of living water. Drink deeply from his word, and God will supply your every need. He will nourish you. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will enable you by the gift of his spirit to put off your old self and to put on your new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, friends, if you are not a Christian, this is impossible for you. You are under the bondage of sin and death. You are currently under God's righteous wrath. And there's nothing you can do to escape it. God has appointed a day that we might die and face judgment. You will give account for everything you've done. And if you stand by yourself, you have no power to resist his condemnation. There's nothing in you that can pay the penalty for your sin. But the good news of the gospel is there is one who has conquered the grave. Jesus Christ died on that cross for sin and rose again so that you might know his victory, so that you might stand forgiven. So repent of your sin and trust in the power of God in Christ. Believe upon him. He alone is able to save you. He will save everyone who believes in his son. So first, you must know God's power to raise Christ from the dead. Second, you must know God's power to glorify his son. Look again at verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is a name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So God not only exerted his omnipotence to raise Christ from the dead, but he also exalted Christ to his heavenly throne. 
This is what we call Christ's ascension to glory. Now, before we think more about what it means that God seated him at his right hand, I just want to briefly meditate on this ascension, on Christ's ascension to glory. And I want to think about it from the words of King David in Psalm 24, verse 1 to 4. Listen to what King David says in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Here's a question for us. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. You know, few embark to ascend Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, and even fewer succeed. Many die in trying. But who in this room can ascend to the mountain of the Lord, Mount Zion, the dwelling place of God in heaven? When was the last time you heard someone say, you know, I booked a ticket on SpaceX the other day, and I'm going to try to ascend to heaven. We can't even make it out of our solar system. And you think you can make it to heaven? And yet God raised Jesus Christ to heaven. He ascended a man to heaven. Jesus Christ, the only man to live all his days with a clean heart. God ascended him to heaven and seated him down at his right hand. Now this phrase to sit down or seated him is a symbol of completion. The right hand is a symbol of God's power, especially to save his people. So Isaiah 41.10 says this, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I uphold you with my righteous right hand. So when God raised Christ and seated him at his right hand, he's accepting his work. He's vindicating Jesus as the rightful son of God. He's accepting Christ's redemptive work as finished and complete. And he's declaring him as the rightful heir to his kingdom. He's the rightful heir to his kingdom. He's completed his work, acceptable and pleasing to God. And now Christ sits down next to God to rule and reign on God's behalf. Now, if there's any doubt what's going on here, Paul further explains the scope of Christ's ascension to glory in verse 21. So look again at verse 21. Says, God seated him far above all rule and authority. That's far above any ruler or authority in heaven or on earth. God raised him up far above all power and dominion. So there's no one who can challenge or threaten Christ's sovereign rule. He's established as the superior king with superior authority. And God has given him the name that is above every name. Not only in this age, but the one to come. So when you put it all together... Something that sounds similar to Philippians 2.10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So God the Father raised his Son, but also glorified his Son as the King of heaven and Lord of glory. God exalted Christ in glory as the rightful king and heir to his throne. Now you have to to remember how amazing this is. Jesus Christ is a man. Yes, he is the one who is fully God, but he's also fully man. God has exalted a man and seated a man on his throne. A man sits on the throne in heaven. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Could there be any doubt that Jesus is God? To sit at the right hand of God and rule and reign with his authority. But even more amazing than this, this is what God is working in you. This is the same power that he raised Christ and seated him as the name above every name. He's now working this in you, Christian. Listen to what Paul says about you in Ephesians 2, 5 to 6. Even when you are dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So if you're in Christ, you have been seated past tense with him in heaven. This is through the Spirit who unites us to Christ. Through faith, we are united to Christ. And so his glory becomes your glory. His name becomes your name. In Christ, you have been seated with him in the heavenly places. I mean, think about it. How how many of us woke up this morning thinking, I'm going to be Sheikh of Sharjah today. Can't do it. You have no power. You must belong to the Al-Qasmi family. Only a son of the king can rule. You need a complete change of identity. Is this not what God does to us? He adopts us in Christ as sons and daughters of glory. In Christ, he has made you a son and a daughter who inherits his kingdom. And he has given you a new name. We hear this in Revelation 3.12 about everyone who endures in faith. Those who conquer, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall I go out of it, and I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. By his great power, God will glorify you, Christian, as sons and daughters with Christ. He has seated you with Christ in the heavenly places, and he is working and preparing you for that glory even now. By his power, you can live out your calling as sons and daughters of the king. Brothers and sisters, you have a new name and a new identity in Christ. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God, 
and you are children of that new Jerusalem. You do not belong to this world, but you belong to your king. You have been made sons in Christ. So God calls you to live like sons, to live in a manner worthy of your calling. Friends, our identity as adopted sons and daughters should now form how we do everything in life, how we work, how we manage our homes, how we manage our finances, how we treat one another and prioritize our time. And if you have a misplaced identity, it will lead to some form of idolatry. If you have a misplaced identity, it will lead to some form of idolatry. For instance, what happens when you place your identity as a son of the Father, your identity in Christ, with your passport? Well, the things you'll value most will come for your culture. Maybe you'll even spend most of your time with those who are like you, who like the same food as you, speak the same language as you. And when you are confronted with scripture that says otherwise than your culture, you will either ignore it or you'll get angry. Or what happens when work becomes your identity? Instead of spending your time in the things that God value as a son, you spend all your time at work. All you think about is the success of your business, securing a financial future, or getting that promotion. Or what about people? When people become your identity? You put all your hope in what others think about you. You find your source of joy in finding that spouse or receiving the approval of your parents or maybe even your elders. You want to feel loved, respected, valuable, so you grasp for acceptance. Friends, God is in the business of tearing down every idol so we will find all of our joy and satisfaction in him. So when you find yourself bowing down to idolatry, Leave these broken cisterns and run to Christ. Remember your identity. Remember that God has adopted you and he treats you as sons. Just as he treats his own son and has glorified his son, he now treats you, beloved. You are a son and daughter of the king. And he now enables you by his spirit to honor him as father in every arena of life. So let his priorities in the scriptures inform how you think how you feel, and how you live. Remember that God has given you a new name and a glorious inheritance. Thirdly, you must know God's power to establish Christ's rule. You must know God's power to establish Christ's rule. Look at verse 22. Ephesians 1, verse 22. And he, that being God, put all things under his feet, that's Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. So God not only exalted his son to glory, but God established his reign and rule. This is what Paul means when he says that God set all things under his feet. Paul here is referencing a well-known Old Testament passage to explain Christ's absolute sovereignty and authority. So think about Psalm 8, verse 3 to 6. Listen to Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? That you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. 
you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. So Paul references this passage to refer to Christ and his authority and dominion. Here in Psalm 8, David is reflecting on God's work in creation. And he thinks back to God's original design. We learn in Genesis 1.26 that God created man in his image so that he might rule over God's kingdom. God gave Adam and Eve dominion over his creation, but we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve sought to establish their own kingdom. But here in Psalm 8, David, the king of Israel, foretells of a future son of man, a future son of man who will take up this mantle and reign in glory. This is the same vision that we see in Daniel 7. Remember Daniel 7? After Daniel sees the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, Daniel hears this in Daniel 17, uh, Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Paul is using this language in Psalm 8 to describe God's work in establishing Christ's kingdom. He has established, God has established Christ's sovereign rule over all heaven and all earth. Remember those, phrase, those phrases in verse 21? He says, far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and every name that is named. God has put all things under Christ's feet. God established Christ's rule over all. So God raised Christ from the dead. Christ, God ascended in power, Christ in glory. And God is establishing his kingdom and rule over all. Christ is not only, the, is not only greater than every king on earth, but Christ rules with absolute authority and total dominion. He rules over every angel. He rules over every saint who belongs to him. He exercises his reign over every earthly authority, over every king, every president. Christ is Lord over all, including his enemies. He rules over every principality, every ruler, even death and Satan himself. All things are subject to this king. And God has exerted his almighty power to establish Christ as Lord of all. As the late R.C. Sproul once said, there is no maverick molecule in all the universe. There is not one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination in Christ. Friends, God has placed every authority and every enemy under the feet of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. This is good news for us, church. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Christ is sovereign over all things. He not only knows all things, he plans all things. He ordains all things. Who is the sheikh 
or the president or the king or the supreme leader of any nation compared to our king. He rules over them all, and all are pawns in his hand to, to do at his bidding. Friends, the amazing truth of the gospel is not only that Christ reigns, but that God has established his reign here in the local church. Did you know that Christ has given his authority, all authority has been given to him, and he has given his authority to us to exercise his dominion on earth. So think about Matthew 16, verse 18. Think about what Jesus tells his disciples, particularly to Peter. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Christ, our king, has commissioned us with almighty authority to exercise his dominion here on earth. Here in the local church. We, the church, represent his almighty rule and sovereign reign on earth. So friends, do you want to see the kingdom of God? You want to see Christ's mighty rule? Then behold his blood-bought bride. Every Sunday, every Sunday when we gather in his name, we exercise his authority on earth. Every time we preach his word, every time we baptize a new member, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time we love one another in word and deed, Christ is ruling in and through his church. Brothers and sisters, this should give you great boldness. Great boldness to pledge your allegiance to Christ wherever you go. Wherever you go, the sovereign one rules here in your midst. The one who holds the universe up by the power of his word holds you and this church. And he has commissioned us and uses us to expand his kingdom to the ends of the earth. I know that living in the Middle East can be frightening, frightening for some of you. I know that some of us can be tempted to maybe to preserve our lives and not engage in the culture around us. You might be thinking, you know, we have a good thing going here. Let's not risk it. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not upset any authorities. Let's be careful. But friends, this does not honor our king. If Jesus is on his throne, you have nothing to fear. What would happen if we take seriously our call to represent Christ to our neighbors, our coworkers, and friends? Maybe. Maybe some of us might lose our jobs. Maybe some of us might be kicked out of the country. Maybe some are thrown in prison. Maybe even some lose their life. But no matter what happens to you, you can rest assured that you are in the hands of your sovereign king who rules all things and ordains all things. Nothing that happens to you, Christian, catches our king by the surprise. Nothing is out of his control. 
He knows it all and plans it all. So really, what can man do to us? What can man do to us? So do not fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In Christ, as a congregation, we can take up the whole armor of God every day. We can stand firm against any earthly or cosmic power that might seek us woe. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours, through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. You must know God's power to establish Christ's rule on earth. So you must know God's power to raise Christ. You must know God's power to exalt him in glory. You must know God's power to establish his rule. And finally, you must know God's power to establish Christ as head of the church. You must know God's power to establish Christ as head of the church. Look again at verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God established Christ's rule and gave him as, a, as head to the church. Did you notice that? The one who puts all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, God now gives Christ, the one who's head over all, to the church. Paul here is describing the special relationship between Christ and the church. He's describing with two images of the head and the body. Christ as head and the church as his body. First, let's think about that word head or headship. Paul uses this word head or headship to, to, to describe Christ's unique and special authority over the church. So we just heard that Christ has all authority over heaven and earth. But Christ has a special, a unique authority over the church. Out there in the world, God is subjecting all of Christ's enemies and placing them under his feet. But here in the church... Jesus Christ is our Lord, our Master, our Savior, our King. He purchased us with his blood. So we, the church, belong to him. He is our King, so we obey his commands. Ephesians 5.22, Paul uses the picture of marriage to describe the relationship of authority and submission between Christ and the church. So listen to Ephesians 5, verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
So just as a husband has a special love and a unique authority over his wife, Christ has a special love and a unique authority over his bride, the church. Friends, this should raise the bar when we think about our obedience as members of this congregation. If someone were to examine your life, would they be able to say that you are someone who is growing, not perfect, but is growing in obedience to Christ in every area of life? Are you someone who's growing in submitting all things to your Lord, to your King, to your Head? He purchased you. He is your master. You do what he says. Or are you just like the world who disregards Christ's commands? So Christ has a special authority with his, over his bride. But Paul also describes the special union we have between Christ and the church. So he uses the word head to describe Christ's authority. But he uses the word body to describe our union to Christ and our union to one another. So as head, Christ is our Lord. But like a human body, the head is attached to the body in such a way that one member hurts. When one member of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. So this analogy helps us understand both Christ's authority and his union with the church. So we, we know it well when we think about members of this congregation. We know if one member hurts, the arm is hurting, hurting well, we know the whole body's hurting. All, all the members are hurting. But did you know when one member hurts? Christ, our head, also hurts. What happens to Christ's body is as if it's happening to Christ himself. And we know this from the marvelous uh, passage we see in Acts 9 when the apostle Paul himself was converted. So Paul, who was formerly called Saul, was persecuting the church. He was taking Christians and throwing them in jail. But then he was converted. He saw a vision of Christ. And what did Jesus say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the church. And Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Persecuting me. Christ is the head of the body and is united to his bride. So what does he do? So Jesus has a special, unique authority over his church. He's the head of his body. And as head, what does Christ do? He fills the church with all the fullness of God. He nourishes and grows the church into all maturity. As head of the church, Jesus Christ is intimately involved in our growth and maturity. He is intimately concerned about your growth in godliness. The one who rolls over all things is not primarily concerned about melting ice caps or rising petrol prices or next presidential election or what's happening in the solar system or an asteroid coming. His main focus, his main attention, his main heart, it's on you. It's on the church. It's on his body. So what does he do? He fills 
the church with all the fullness of God. He nourishes and strengthens the church. The one who fills all in all fills the church so that we, the bride, might be the fullness of God. That we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That we might grow into full maturity, into head, into the head, into Christ. So what does Christ do? What does it look like for the one who fills all things to fill us, his body, with the fullness of God? How does he care for us and nourish us and strengthen us that we might grow? Well, in the book of Ephesians, we learn that Christ gives gifts to the church. He gives spiritual gifts. He gives gifts of men. So turn with me to Ephesians 4, verse 10 to 16. Ephesians 4, 10 to 16. This is how Christ cares for his body. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or pastors, to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all obtain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is what Christ is doing. God gave his son to the church as head of the body. And Christ, our Lord and Savior, gives gifts of men, like your pastors, to equip you saints to do what? To take the word of Christ and to speak the word of Christ to one another. To minister the gospel to one another. This is so that we as a body might grow into the fullness of Christ, into full maturity and manhood. So you have a job to do. And God in his power enables you to do it. This is to protect us. You see that from winds of doctrine, false winds of doctrine. This is to help us endure to heaven. This is to help us grow in maturity and love. Jesus Christ, your king, the one who holds all things and rules over thing, all things, is intimately involved in our growth and our maturity and our endurance in the faith. Friends, is there any greater work? Is there any greater work to help one another make it to heaven? Is there any greater work to help one another by the power of God who raised Christ from the dead to help one another make it to glory? It is only by the power of God 
through the Spirit in Christ that each one of us will grow day by day to put off sin and to put on Christ. By faith, as we look not to ourselves or to our surroundings, but by faith, looking to the founder and perfecter of our faith, we run this race of endurance until that day we hear his words, well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, God will complete the work he is doing in you. The things he's doing in our church and in you, he will bring it to completion. He will finish it. He will eradicate sin in you forever. He will raise your body from the grave. He will wipe away every tear. He will raise you and ascend you with Christ, and you will rule and reign with him forever. That is the hope of our resurrection. That is the hope coming. That is the hope that we have in Christ. So in light of that hope, the light of what God has done in Christ and is, in doing, is doing in us, let us endure. Look to your risen King and hope in him. Let the hope of that day scatter the fog of unbelief. Look to his glory and hope in his return. Wait upon him and he will scatter the fog of unbelief. He will help you, sustain you, and keep you to the end. Your risen king rules and reigns, so live in the power that he supplies. God will keep you from stumbling and one day will present you to himself in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope we have in Christ. We thank you for your great power that you exerted to raise Christ from the dead and to send him as king. Lord, I pray that we would walk not in our own strength, but in your strength, that we will be able to put off our sin and walk in Christ's righteousness, that you would increase our faith and our hope so that we might endure to the end. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus.